Amen. Good morning again. Uh, we are continuing through our book, or book, our series on the book of Psalms. Uh, that is our summer series. So far we've done Psalm of Praise, uh, a Psalm of Confidence. Uh, we've done a Lament. Um, and today we are working through a kingly psalm. And so we're doing 12 psalms total throughout the, throughout the summer. Um, so today is, this psalm is focused on the kingship, not of David as we would normally think when we think of the king of Israel, but the Lord, Yahweh, his kingship. Uh, last month we had um, the privilege of, and the blessing of being able to witness some members of our church family getting baptized. Now, before each one was baptized, I asked them the question, if you were here and you remember uh, hearing this, is, is Jesus the Savior, treasure, and Lord of your life? So is he the Savior of your life? Has he forgiven your sins? Have you put your trust in him to forgive you of the sins which has, will withhold you from salvation, eternal life in heaven forever, because our sin separates ourselves from a holy, perfect God. And is he your treasure? Is he the most valuable thing in your life? Now, none of this is perfect. We are not our perfect Savior, um, but we trust him who is the perfect Savior. Uh, we may not always every day recognize him as our treasure, but as a believer, when we read his word, when we when we think of our relationship with God, when we pray to Him, are we striving each and every day to make Him more the treasure of our life, the most valuable thing to us, that we're willing to lay aside all the things of this world, and yes, all the things of this world, including family, friends, money, job, all of those things, if that is what Christ is calling us to, because He is the most valuable thing in my life. That doesn't mean nothing has value anymore other than Him. It's that he's the most valuable thing in our life. And then the third is the Lord. Is he the Lord of your life? And that's what Psalm 93 touches on, that last title, as Christ, as God, Yahweh, as the Lord. And so what does it mean for God to be our Lord? Because a Lord, uh, maybe in our Western culture and trying to figure out what this is, we don't have lords and ladies. We don't have that kind of society. Uh, but a Lord is not a boss. Uh, a Lord is not a parent. A Lord is not a president or a prime minister. A Lord is a king, which in our Western culture doesn't help much, right? When we think, because we're like, we don't have kings. We don't, we don't have that type of authority in our life. But for those nations that do, and I think even in America, we can remember or at least read history and have a basic understanding that the king is the ultimate earthly authority whose servants willingly and loyally follow their decrees. But an earthly king is different from a heavenly king. Because even King David, king of Israel, was anointed as king by someone other than himself, and that is the Lord. There was a greater authority who placed upon David the authority and rule as king. And of course, that's Yahweh. 
Yahweh, through Samuel, anointed David as king. David did not anoint himself king. If he tried to do that, it would not be a legitimate kingship in the eyes of the Lord. The one who gave him authority is the Lord because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so here's the question then. How is it that the Lord, Yahweh, is king? And how does that affect those who proclaim him as king? That's really what this psalm is getting at and teaching us. How is it that the Lord, Yahweh, is king? And how does that affect those of us who proclaim him as king? So verses 1 and 2, let's read it again. Psalm 93, verses 1 and 2. Hold on a second. Remind me of my age. Here we go. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. He is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. So right off the bat, the psalmist makes it clear. The Lord reigns. The Lord is the one who rules as king. But where does the Lord's authority come as king? Where does it come from? As I said, King David's authority and majesty was bestowed upon him by the Lord. But who anoints God as king? The Lord anoints himself as king. And you said, but Mark, you just said a king who anoints himself is illegitimate. Yes, the earthly king who anoints himself as king is illegitimate. You see, when it says the Lord reigns, he clothes himself in majesty. Wait, that doesn't say that, right? No, it says he robes, he is robed in majesty, but the literal translation is he clothes himself in majesty. The Lord clothes himself in excellence, in dignity, importance, in superiority. Why? Because there is no other greater, greater authority than the Lord himself. So who can grant him authority other than himself? You know what that means? He's, he's at the top of the food chain, if you want to put it that way. Now, that may put it in a little negative term, but he is the authority. There is nothing greater than himself. And we see this in the very next verse when it says, the Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. He has put the strength upon himself. The Lord puts his own strength on his own self. No one does it for him. See, here's the thing. You and I can't make God any stronger than he already is. No one does that for him. If we did and we were able to, if we had that ability to give him strength, it would be like me saying that the sun is strong and majestic because of me. I woke up this morning and the sun suddenly became beautiful and majestic and powerful. Like you would go, that's arrogant. And yet many times, that's how we treat God. And I say we as the church, Christians, like me waking up in the morning suddenly has given God majesty and glory. All right, Lord, I'm here. Now you can do your work. We tend to think that way sometimes. Now, maybe not to that degree, but 
we have to watch our own hearts. We can become arrogant. We can think that on Sunday morning that this is all about me showing up, saying the right words up front, and that way then God has the power then to move in the church's life. How arrogant would that be of me? Especially since you all know me very, very well. That is not what it means for us to worship Him. The sun is strong and majestic before I was born. It'll be strong and majestic long after I am dead. And so it is with the Lord. The Lord grants Himself authority because there is no greater authority than Himself. And He is what He is. He is majestic. He is beautiful. He is powerful. He is mighty. He is great. He is sovereign. And He has power and authority over all things. And he doesn't need me to tell him that. He likes hearing it, but it doesn't make him that, my worship of him. And where an earthly king's throne and kingdom have boundaries, the Lord's throne and kingdom is the world itself. It's the universe. King David's authority was limited to the kingdom of Israel. But the Lord's authority is unlimited. The whole earth. And if you read that... The earth, it says, the earth is his throne. The earth is where his power is established. His throne is fixed. It is unmovable. And his throne has been this way from of old. From the beginning of the creation of this world, simply put, the Lord's authority over this world is immovable. It is all-encompassing, and it is eternal. And our understanding of his authority affects how we view the chaos and the troubles of this world. Because let's be honest, our world is a mess. I don't think I've ever met somebody who said, our world is perfect. There are no issues whatsoever. Everything is hunky-dory, unless you're living in a hole in the wall all alone. And even then, let's be honest, we're just as messed up as the world. And so if I'm by myself, I'm messed up, right? This world is a mess. Chaos seems to rule the day. Truth is whatever you make it. Right is what feels good in the moment. Not to mention the disease and sickness always seem to have the upper hand. Natural events such as tornadoes, earthquakes, wildfires are completely out of our control. We hear the rising murder rates in cities or a father killing his own children. Really, that's our world. A shooting in a school, another mutation of the COVID virus, and that's just like the tip of the iceberg. Only to realize that we actually have zero to little control over the chaos in my own life, let alone the chaos in the world around us. And it is so easy to become consumed. We live in a world of information that's at the, the, right at your fingertips, We could all right now pull out our phones and pull up a news feed. And it's all going to be positive. Everything is wonderful, right? No, it's negative. You hear all the the bad things that are happening in this world. What are we to do about it? I mean, there's only so much. I, I only have so much influence in my life. Now, if I could sit down and have a conversation with President Biden, I would, but he ain't calling me because he doesn't know me, and I have no influence that way, let alone, I don't really want that kind of influence, let's be honest, okay? 
But we do know the one who is over all things. The Lord is king over all the chaos. And what does all mean? It's all. There is nothing in this world that is mightier than our God. I've seen videos of floodwaters destroying a steel bridge. If you ever stood in the middle of a, of a fast-flowing stream, even just like up to your shins, you can feel the power of that water pushing you, that if you weren't firm and had a firm foundation, it would just wipe you out from the feet and lift you up onto your back. As a young man, I learned firsthand the power of the ocean waves. Anybody been to the ocean and, and stood? Okay, I, I made an attempt to jump through a wave, roughly about 10 feet high. <clears throat> it didn't go very well. I misjudged the angle of my jump and was tossed and tumbled back onto the sand. I wasn't in any danger, thank goodness, because I was so close to the shore, but the power of thousands of gallons of water treating my body like a rag doll was a reminder of the ocean's power and my weakness over that power. But that's not so with God. So when we read this psalm in verse 3, the floods have lifted up, O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice, the floods lift up their roaring, Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. So this is what he's saying. The chaos of this world. When we look at it through our eyes, we see chaos, we see hopelessness, and we don't know what to do. How, how, how am I supposed to handle this? And the psalmist is saying, you know those things that look to us like chaos, they're actually subservient to the king. Now, his sovereignty, that's a whole, we could go into that, right? Okay, so did he cause this? Did he do this? Did he do that? It doesn't, right now, that's not what the psalmist is getting at. What he's saying is the chaos in this world, as powerful and as mighty as it may be, the floodwaters, the ocean waves, as mighty as they are, are nothing compared to the might of our king. He is king over all. The power of the ocean is nothing in comparison to his power and might. Tornadoes, hurricanes, disease, and all the other things of this world, including COVID, is nothing in comparison to the power and the might of our Lord. And so what is this chaos? What is this chaos to us, or what is chaos to us, is not chaos to God. Now again, don't hear me say like, oh, you know, a tornado going through a town and destroying the town and killing dozens of people. Ah, that's nothing. That, that is not what we're saying. What we're saying is God is more powerful than that. The tornadoes bow to the Lord where we bow to the tornadoes in one sense. It doesn't care who we are. A tornado comes through. It's going to have its power over us. But it bows to the Lord. What is chaos to us is not chaos to Him. What is too great for us to handle or comprehend or to control is not so for the Lord. For as King, He is mightier than all. 
And so his authority is immovable, all-encompassing and eternal over this world. He is mightier than the chaos of, of this world. And so, as his people, we can trust his decrees and his worthiness of our worship. This is verse 5. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. The Lord's royal decrees are not just reliable and sure. They are, did you catch that word? Very reliable. So one of the rules in our house is that we're not allowed to use absolute language. Like you always do this. You always punish me, and you never punish my sister. <laughs> like, well, is that really true? No. No, we can't use those ab- that absolute language because there was maybe one time 10 years ago where I didn't punish you and I punished your sister. But when it comes to God, we can use that language. The Lord's royal decrees are very reliable. There is no question that what God says is going to happen. And that what God decrees is always perfectly fair, true, honest, honest, and right. So, for instance, God decrees in 1 John 1, 9. We're going to go through a bunch of passages. Some of the things that he says. Some of the things that we like hearing. Some of the things that we don't like hearing. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so God has promised to forgive us when we confess our sinful rebellion against his royal decrees. He says, do this. We don't do it. We confess our sins before him, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of that sin. And we love that, right? Like, okay, even as believers, I can sin, and I know God is going to forgive me. Or as an unbeliever, when, when we are called to love him and to devote ourselves to him and to proclaim him as Lord, and we confess our sin which is separating us from him in our relationship with him, we confess those sins and we say, I have disobeyed you, I have hated you, and I have loved my sin. Father, forgive me for that and change me. He forgives us. He promised he will to use the word, save us from his wrath for our sins. Amen and amen, right? Okay, well, he also decrees in Matthew 25, 31 through 33, that at the last judgment, Christ is going to judge the world. He's going to separate humanity into sheep and goats. The sheep who care for Christ's people and love him will enter into eternal life, those who are saved from their sins. But the goats who don't care for Christ's people, and they hate Christ, will enter into eternal punishment. We don't really necessarily like hearing that very much, right? But yet, that's true, because God says so. Or in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, God commands His people, you shall have no other gods before me, because the Lord is a jealous God who cannot tolerate His people's love, worship, and loyalty be given to someone other than Him. Similar to, and I've used this before uh, in the past, this example. I am jealous for my wife's love. If she gave 
the kind of love that she has for me to another man? Would I be right in being jealous against that? Absolutely. Because I am her husband, that other man is not. And I want her love for me. That's not a selfish love. It's, it's a love of covenant. She's my wife. And I am the only one who should be given that type of love. That's how it is with the Lord. He is jealous because there's the love that we have for him should be given only to him and not to the other things in this world. Or Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, where he commands his church, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The tendency and the temptation is to say, I'm good, I don't need the church. I'm going to listen to a podcast, I'm going to watch a video of a pastor in California, and that's where I'm going to meet with God's people. You're not meeting with God's people. You're meeting with yourself. You just happen to be hearing God's people. doing something. This right here is the gathering of God's people. Having coffee with a fellow believer, that is gathering with God's people. Attending Bible studies. Heck, even going out to lunch together. That's meeting with God's people to encourage one another. God commands this, and he's right in commanding this. You see, this book right here, the entirety of this book is the royal decree of Yahweh. Every word of it is true. Every word of it is right. Every word of it is trustworthy. And should we disagree with his word, the issue lies with us, not with his decree. Now, you, you may say, well, what about the one where it says we need to take the children who disobey out into the, outside the camp and stone them? Well, that's why you have to look at all the decrees of the Lord because Christ fulfilled that. F- Christ fulfilled God's word. But it is still right and it is still true. It is not a false command for God to say this. There's purpose and reason behind it. You've got to study it. Okay, now I do use that against my children, you know, what the Lord says, right? Okay, now that is wrong, and it is sinful, and you've got to confess that. I, I understand that, and of course they roll their eyes, you're not going to do that. Of course I'm not going to do that. But His Word is right. If we strive to rightly understand it, rather than putting our own meaning into it, to change it, and to transform it, to meet my desires or my own thoughts and what I am comfortable with, rather than taking the context of the entire decree of God. His word is right. His word is true. And so we can obey his decrees with the uttermost certainty that they are absolutely reliable, very sure, and ultimately for our good. So his authority is absolute. Authority is absolute. His strength and power are mightier than the chaos of this world. His decrees are trustworthy. And so he is worthy of our worship. This is where it says, holiness befits your house, or holiness adorns or is fitting for your house. 
Now, holy means, holiness means to be set apart. So God's house is his temple, and his holy presence makes the temple a fitting place for his people to worship him. Does that make sense? If God was not there, it would just be a building. There would be nothing holy about that building, the temple. But because God is there, it is now holy, and it is worthy to be a place for God's people to worship him because he is there. He has set that apart. Now, that's, that's at the time of the psalmist, right? That, that's the building in Jerusalem. But today, God's people are his temple. And just as the building in Jerusalem was holy only because of God's presence, so it is with his people today. We are holy, set apart, not because of our awesomeness, not because we have the right political views, not because I have said or done the right thing, but because his holy presence resides within us. And so it is fitting that our worship of him is not confined to a building, but to the entirety of our lives. Holiness is fitting for your house because you are there. Your authority is there, your might is there, and your holiness is there. Psalm 29 verse 2 reads this way, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Now listen to this one. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. God's people are to worship him for who he is. He is our king and the only one worthy of our worship and praise. And so we, as his people, on a Sunday morning, gather together, whether that's here or in the park, or individually when we wake up in the morning and we open our eyes and a word of praise comes out of our mouth, we do it in the splendor of holiness because He is holy. With He who is within us is holy. But unlike earthly kings whose rule over a kingdom always comes to an end, the Lord's rule and reign is eternal. We see this in verse 2 and the very last word of this psalm. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Psalm 90 verse 2 reads, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth, and behold, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Or Job 36, 26. Behold, God is great. We know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. Or Genesis 1.1, go all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, God, our king, is not elected. <laughs> we, we can vote as a church to worship this stool. We, we could do that. We'd be crazy, but we could do that. But that does not mean that Lord, the Lord is no longer king over the world. We cannot elect him. He's not put in power by force of arms. He has been king over all things from before the beginning of creation. 
His years are unsearchable because he has no years. Isn't that crazy to think about? He has always been, and of course, when we try to understand this as human beings, the greatness and the bigness of God, it like blows our minds. We can't comprehend eternity. We can say it, but we can't grasp it. And yet, his trustworthy word, his decrees, tells us all over Scripture, God is eternal. Our God is bigger than us. Our God is bigger than time. He is bigger than all of creation. He is bigger than any chaos that we could ever imagine in this world. If you pull up a news feed this afternoon, guess what? God's bigger than that. He's bigger than what that says. He's bigger than inflation. He's bigger than wars. He's bigger than any authority we could ever imagine on earth. That is the God that we worship. We don't come here to worship the United States of America or England or Uganda or Russia or any other earthly nation. We don't come here to worship the pastor. Thank God, literally thank God you don't do that. Because we worship a God who's bigger than all of it. He has always been. He has always been. There has never been a time that God has not been the biggest kid on the playground. If you want to really put it super general, probably blasphemy. I don't know. We'll talk about that later. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forever, forevermore. So not only has God always been, but he will always be. And everything that we just read, everything we read about him and we read about him in his word is absolutely true. Forever. Nothing changes because he never changes. The God we worship this morning, have you thought about this? The God that we are worshiping this morning is the same God who spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden. It's the same God. He's the same God who spoke to Abraham and Moses and David and Elijah and Peter and John. It's the same God, just as powerful. He never changes, and his decrees never change. Malachi 3, 6. Now I'm going to throw a bunch of more passages at you. What I'm trying to do is just throw you, this is the Word of God, and this is what the Word of God is saying. So this is trying to throw the weight of Scripture at you, not taken out of context, <laughs> to show God is forever, and He never changes. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. I am a holy God. I will always be a holy God, but I promised I wouldn't kill you, so I'm not going to kill you. That's basically what he's telling Israel. And that's not during the Exodus. That's Malachi. That's the last book of the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken? And will he not fulfill it? God will do what he says. He doesn't change. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. 
The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. James 1, 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. People like to say the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are different. And we're here saying this morning, they're the same God, demanding the same holiness. It's just that praise God that Jesus came and fulfilled the Old Testament so that I'm not consumed by my sin. We do not listen to and worship a God who is fickle, changing with the winds of culture or my own personal desires. He has decreed the truth in his trustworthy word. This book right here, he has robed himself in majesty, for there is no one greater than himself. The world is his throne and has been and will be forevermore. He is mightier than any chaos or turmoil of this world. He, because of this, now is worthy of our worship. Who else are we going to worship? Well, God, I know you're the mightiest of all, but I'm going to go to the, the second level power because, you know, I feel closer to them than I do to you. And God says, no, you got a direct link to me. Come to me. Speak to me. Trust in me. I am the only one worthy of your worship. And so he is our king. So we have to ask ask ourselves, this is where the application comes in. And it's a very simple application. I can look at the world that's, okay, let, that's easy, right? You look at the world and you go, well, gee, they obviously, Jesus is not their king. God is not their king. Well, of course. We can even look at the people around us, our family and our friends, and say, well, obviously, you're not trusting God as your king in this moment or in your life, period. Where the real application has to happen is we've got to look at our own hearts. If we are children of God, yes, he is our king. The question is, is our life and our mind and what we say reflecting that? Is there something we're holding on to? Control, if you want to say. That if I could just do this rather than give it to God, I don't want to bother him with this, and so I'm going to control this, and I'm going to make it right. But if God is our king, if Yahweh is our king, then are we actually living our life as if he is our king? Are we worshiping him and him alone? Can we stand um, with the first command and say, Father, I have no other gods before you. My family is not before you. My job is not before you. My friends are not before you. My grades are not before you. Money is not before you. These are all good things, Father, but I am willing to give them up if you would ask me so, because you are my king. See, God's authority is absolute. His strength and power are mightier than the chaos of this world. His decrees are trustworthy. He has been, is, and always will be king, enthroned upon the earth. And so, 
He's worthy of our worship. Are we worshiping Him? Are we worshiping Him as a church? Do we trust Him? Do we live for Him? And do we love Him and obey Him as our King? Father, I pray You would help us. Help us, Father. We proclaim You as King and we ask that our hearts and our lives would every day submit to you more and more that you would reveal those areas of our life father where we are putting someone or something else above you and we would confess that father and give it to you and submit to your authority and to your decrees the father change our hearts more and more so we love you more deeply that it's not just action father but it's a true heart change I pray that you would help us, me, Father, to let go of those things that right now I'm holding dear to, that I'm getting frustrated with, that I'm getting overwhelmed with, to lay them at your feet, trusting you will take care of them, you will guide us, you will strengthen me, Father, to overcome these things, not in my own power, but in yours. And so may our lives as your people here at Elm Creek, Father, reflect your glory, reflect your authority, reflect you as king. May people see us outside of this building and should they come in, that they will know who we worship and who we bow to and who is our king. That is you, Father. Make that more real in our lives. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.